is that at the end of my life, when all is said and done, he can say, well done. That means I didn't live my life for me. It means if I was poured out as a sacrificial offering, I gave everything I had not to make my name great, but to make great the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, that is our prayer. That at the end of this life, we made your name great. That we took a step back from our life Lord, even as we hear the word today, let those words be a reminder to us that we are here to glorify God only, not in and ourselves. We thank you now, Lord, that as the word goes forth, that you will encourage us, you will strengthen us, and you will edify us to be disciples and to go make disciples of others. It is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray, God. Everybody say it, amen. Amen. So we are so excited. Over the past several weeks, um, as you um, may know, that we have been talking about discipleship. And as we've been talking about discipleship, we have been covering the different aspects of discipleship. Some of the things that we have covered is what it means to renounce our fanaticism as Christians. What it means to renounce the very idea that we are merely just fans of Christ who are not dedicated followers of him. We then talked about what it means to renounce our flesh and our carnality when it comes to us having a relationship with Christ and allowing our flesh to be the weakest part of us. We then talked about what it means for a disciple to step out of the way of their own lives and allow the Lord to operate and move as he so decides so that he is in fact the strength of what we do. And last week we talked about what the cost, the precious cost is of being a disciple. I think somewhere in the name of church growth, we have become self-serving as churches. We have deflected what discipleship is, and now we do what I call reverse discipleship. So what is reverse discipleship? Reverse discipleship is the notion that we reach out in order to bring in. But real discipleship never taught us to reach out, to bring in. It taught us to reach in and go out and then bring them in. See, we we have become seeker-sensitive churches, seeker-friendly churches, which means what happens on Sunday mornings has reverted to nothing more than a performance. And the pulpit has now become a stage where we all demonstrate how gifted we are in front of the Lord. 
and the music becomes nothing more than a glorified concert. And for maybe 20 minutes, we'll get light refreshments or what some people call a sermon. See, the notion is that I can take those little light sermons and what I'm going to do is I'm going to appeal to the most human part of you. Because if I appeal to your humanity, of course you'll come back. And by appealing to your humanity, I will put a heavy emphasis on things that are inward seeking. So how can you be a better you in 21 days? How can you go to your next level in God in seven days? How can you have this and how can you have that? How can your relationship with God bring more edification to you and more glorification to you? And see, churches like this are cleverly designed and they always have these huge efforts when it comes to taking care of the poor. And feeding the homeless. Because again, that appeals to your humanity. Because even the worst person, the Bible tells us, even those of you who are evil will still give your children good gifts. See, we want to appeal to the humanity of the people. Go out and feed the homeless. Go out and take care of the poor. And then we'll label that as evangelism. But how is it evangelism and how is it a noble act if while we take care of the physical need, we neglect to meet the spiritual need? See, oftentimes, and and I want you to be able to understand this, and I'm going to take my time with this sermon today so that you can really hear the purpose of it. Oftentimes what happens is we go out and we have these big initiatives. To go feed the homeless. To go clothe them. To go take care of them. But we don't meet the most essential need that they have, which is the lack of salvation. You may have noticed that our church has slowed down on our initiatives to take care of the homeless and feed the homeless. Now let me, let's be clear. When you hear in the Bible, when Jesus said, when I was sick... When I was poor, when I was in prison, he says, when you did this to the least of these, that's what we hear. But there's a word that he has in there that we often miss. And he said, when you did this to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. What does my brethren mean? He says, when you neglected to take care of those who were in the household of faith, you did it to me. So when we as believers are more outward seeking, neglecting to meet the immediate needs of people who are already in the body of Christ, God does not get glory out of that. Because what does it matter to a person if while their bellies are full, their spirits are void and empty? Have we provided for them the need that they have? Now, just so you know this, and before I say what I'm going to say, let me preface it by telling you this. I'm not saying this so that I can get any kind of glory. I'm not saying this because it makes me a better person. It does not. But every week, I made a decision. I was going to go sit in Lynn Park with the homeless. I made that decision. That does not have to be anybody else's conviction. That was my own conviction. 
Because when we went out there, I started noticing these people were well fed, they were well clothed, they were often well taken care of, but nobody was sharing the gospel to them. And because nobody was sharing the gospel to them, these people were taken care of physically, but spiritually, they were homeless. And so I go out there, and I sit out there, and I don't enjoy it. Because it's often really cold or really hot. The bugs are everywhere. You see and hear everything. But in my time, I was out there yesterday, in my time in being out there, it has confirmed to me that they need nothing more than the gospel. And I've seen church after church after church after church. There are six churches that come out every single week and they all provide for them. They all give them meals. They give them socks. They cut their hair. They wash their feet. And I have seen it. Nobody gives them the gospel. How is it that that is a noble act to God when we have met their physical needs, but we have left them in need spiritually? So the question is, if I neglect to meet the need of a person that is spiritual and not physical, does it even glorify God at all? I want you to see something. When Jesus comes to the man at the pool of Bethesda, that man tells him, not that he had to because, of course, Jesus knew it. I have been here 38 years. And Jesus asks him a pretty offensive question. He says, do you even want to be made whole? Now, wait a minute. Why would Jesus ask such an offensive question to a man who clearly just didn't have anybody to put him into the pool? It's because Jesus is the wisest man that's ever lived. He knew that it stood to reason that after 38 years, you with your lame self, if you really wanted to be made whole, you would have rolled your way into the pool. If you really wanted to be made whole, you would have clawed your way to that pool. But Jesus, in all his wisdom, knew that at some point there were Christian people, there were spiritual people, instead of putting the man in the pool so he could be a normal contributor to society, what did they do? They just met his need. The need that they thought was most sufficient for him. And so at some point, he started to realize, you know what? It is easier for me to sit at this pool and have these needs right now met while I may die spiritually. See, we cannot just go out and blindly try to provide for people in a way that meets their physical need and think that that will draw them to the church. It will not. All we become is a glorified, free grocery store that when they need us, they know exactly when we're going to show up. I've had some of the people that I talked to reveal some horrifying things about their lives right now. Who need the gospel. And we gave them a meal. And so today... What I want you to see 
is that the primary role of a Christian is nothing else. It is nothing else than to be a disciple and go make disciples of everybody else. That's what a Christian does. That is what a Christian does. And if you are looking for a way to quantify success as a disciple of Christ, my question would be, how many people have you brought to the Lord? Not how many people have you brought to Victory City. That's an irrelevant number. How many people have you brought to Christ? How many people has God used you to lead to Christ? That's the role of a disciple. We're going to jump in now to Matthew 4, 18. Matthew 4, 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among them. Now, this is a text that most of us probably have some sense of familiarity with. When it says that Jesus was going by the Sea of Galilee, you need to understand that that was the job hub. That was a career hub where he knew there would be a lot of men out there earning their keep because a lot of them were fishermen. And so he intentionally went by the Sea of Galilee so that he would find men who would follow him. Because he knew that there would be more men there than there would be anywhere else. Not only did he know that, but he knew that Simon and Andrew would be out there. And he says to them, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's the first thing I want you to see today. Fishers of men. Now, just so you understand, Jesus is not being clever. This is not some clever double entendre when he's saying, I will make you fishers of men. But he is charging them. Contrary to how you have been fishing, I'm going to disrupt what you have been doing to earn your career. I'm going to cause you to disregard what causes you to make the most money and you're going to turn everything over. You're going to follow me and regardless of what you did before, you are now going to be a fisher of men. And now you would go out not to draw fish, but to draw men and not to just draw them, but draw them into the kingdom of God. Then it says that they immediately left and followed him. Now, I know what you're thinking if you paid attention to last sermon. I said, well, wait a minute. Our Christianity, our discipleship should be a rational response. But here it looks like they just on a whim followed him. They didn't know anything about Jesus. So maybe it's not a rational response. Uh, you might be wrong. So you got to know the whole Bible. See, if we look in the book of Luke, Luke recounts this same encounter. But Luke was a physician. So Luke often detailed things a little bit more than other people. 
In Luke 5 and 1, the same encounter, but I want you to hear the depth of how he records it. On one occasion, while the crowd was, while the crowd was pressing, pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little far from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, you clearly don't know how this works. We have worked all night. We have worked all night and we have taken nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. So much so that their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so much so that the boats began to sink. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, now you can see the full context of what happened here. See, they followed Jesus, but I want you to see what made them follow him. The Bible tells us that Jesus was actually teaching. He was teaching them. And when it says that he climbed into the boat and he asked them to push it out a little further, you probably just kind of glanced over that and said, what's the significance of that? But in that time, they didn't have microphones. They didn't have things to illuminate the sound or themselves. So when he got into the boat and asked him to push him out further, what would happen is the sea around him, the Sea of Galilee, would serve as a natural amplification system because there were thousands of people who were hanging around the Sea of Galilee. And he wanted to ensure that everybody heard exactly what he was teaching. So he got in the boat. He sat down when they pushed him out further, his voice bounced off of the water and it screamed at everybody else so that they could hear that he was actually teaching. See, what I want you to see here is that what Jesus did in yesterday to draw people must be the same thing that we do today to draw people. And that's teaching them. That's teaching them. Now, Did Jesus perform miracles? Yes. But who did Jesus perform miracles for? Ah. Jesus never performed a miracle for somebody who didn't believe. Which means that his miracles were not for people who didn't believe. His miracles were for people who had the faith to believe. 
which means we cannot be a glorified performance center where you can come get what you need from God because Jesus didn't even do that. Jesus knew that the most effective way to draw legitimate, real disciples was to teach them. Now, even when the people were healed, it was a sign for the unbelievers. And many times unbelievers would run up to him. But you'll remember, it's recorded in Mark and Matthew. The Bible says, because of their unbelief, he wouldn't do anything for them. See, there were loads of people who were like, oh, wait a minute, you're healing leprosy? Hey, can you heal me and I'll follow you? And Jesus said, you missed the first prerequisite, and that was belief. Because even Jesus, in the fullness of God, the full deity of God, did not reduce discipleship to what I can do for you. Do you know who I really am? That's what it was. How is it then that Jesus, who was in full deity and full humanity, all of the fullness of God, saw teaching as the most effective way to draw people, yet we clothe our churches with clever lights, clever sermon titles, clever schemes, clever agendas in order to draw people so that they don't really know what they're coming in for. (laughs) The word is the only effective way to draw people. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. When Peter gets this request from Jesus, that's Simon, his name is Simon. When he gets this request, he knows that it doesn't make sense. See, fishing, especially when it's your career, it has to be done in a way that is strategic. See, you have to stay closer to the shallow waters so that you can actually be able to catch fish. And, and what he's saying is, he said, listen, we have already been out here all night and we haven't caught anything. But Jesus tells them, disregard the way that you have been doing it and follow the way that I have instructed you. And when he does, the Bible says that not only does the, the, do the nets get filled, but it gets filled to the point that the boats are about to sink. What is Jesus showing them? It's not just a miracle, people. He's showing them much more than a miracle. 
He's demonstrating to us what it is like to be a disciple of Christ. He says, see, in your system as a fisherman, you can't go out and say, hey, fish, I'm trying to catch you to eat you. You got to be sneaky. You got to be covert and you got to be deceptive in order to bring the fish in. And you have to stay in the shallow waters. You can't go too deep because the deeper you go, the worse fish you get. So you have to stay in the shallow waters and you have to be very deceptive. But he's saying in God's system. All you have to do is listen to the instruction and he will draw whom he will draw. And I understand that staying at the surface for fishing is good. But when it comes to the Bible, we can't just stay at the surface. We have to go deeper. See. What he wants them to see is, of course, what I just told you doesn't make sense to draw fish because what I'm going to tell you to draw people is often not going to make sense. But it's important that you understand that Christ drawing anybody is the sovereign work of God through the saving death of Christ, not you. That's why in the book of Corinthians, Paul says, listen, you are concerned about whether it's Paul or whether it's Apollos. He said, but disregard that because who plants is insignificant. Who waters is insignificant. It's significant, but it is God that gives the increase. Which means as long as we as Christians, as long as we as disciples, just listen to what he says. He will draw people. More importantly, Jesus himself says that if I be lifted up from the earth, that is both physically and spiritually, I will draw all men unto me. Where is the draw? Where there is no lifting. Of course there can be no draw where the name of Jesus is not actually being lifted. Now, we are lifting a name, but it's not his name. See, as long as we all have to own our own ministries and have our own jets and drive our own Escalades and have all these big houses, I'm lifting my name. And there are people being drawn, but they ain't getting drawn to God. That's why oftentimes, if you remember with Moses, those people thought they had a relationship with God, but they didn't. And so when Moses went up to the mountain, it took no time for them to do exactly what he told them not to do because they didn't have a relationship with God. They had a relationship with the man. Far too often in too many of our churches, we are making disciples of ourselves. We are not making disciples of Christ. Which is why there are people who will bend over backwards to make sure their pastor is happy, but will not even open their Bible when it's inconvenient for them. Because you ain't a disciple of Christ. Now, you probably look at this occurrence and you say, well, it says they followed him, but this still seems strange. Like, they don't really know this man. And I get it, he did a miracle, but come on. 
They don't know who he is. It seems like they still followed him just because of the miraculous occurrence. Again, you got to read the whole book. Good thing is I put it in here so you could go to it. Let's go to John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's important. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, there's the Lamb of God. There he is. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, I would love to exegete this to the point that you go to sleep, but I can't. We'll have to address this on a later day. But there are a few things I do want you to see. One, that they were previously disciples of John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? John the Baptist said, I prepare the way of him who comes. He said, I am preparing the way of Jesus Christ, the man whose sandals I'm not even worthy to tie. So John the Baptist had disciples. He had followers. Two of those followers were the people we saw, which was Andrew and Peter. So they already knew who Jesus was because not only were they John's disciples, but John was a disciple of Jesus himself. And not only was he a disciple of Jesus, he was Jesus' cousin. He knew exactly who Jesus was. And that is what a real disciple does. In the minute that Jesus walked by, he immediately deflected the attention off of himself and said, There is the man you're looking for. There is the man who can meet your needs. So when, they, when the Bible says that they followed him, they have seen Jesus on multiple encounters. And they have made a decision based on what they have seen, but more importantly, what they have heard, to follow him. Next point I want you to see is teaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing. Let's jump back to Matthew Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus was going through this area and he was teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. Now, that is not a word that is invented in the Bible from Jesus. The word gospel comes from when Caesar would would hand out news. Whenever he would hand out news on edicts, you know what he always said? The gospel. Because it was always good news when it was coming from Caesar. 
And so when the Bible says that he was proclaiming the gospel, it says that he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But for many people, the news wasn't that good. See, what Jesus came is he came to deliver the worst news of all to some people. Which is, by the way, I'm the Messiah. By the way, everything you've been doing is hypocritical. By the way, I'm going to be the one who pays the price for your hypocrisy. By the way, the man that you're going to kill, you have to believe in to be saved in the first place. That ain't great news if you don't believe. And so what we see here is right after this, Jesus goes on to give the most famous sermon ever, the best sermon ever, which is the Beatitudes, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus taught, he disrupted two groups. He disrupted the religious leaders and he disrupted the cultural leaders. Unfortunately, today in our world, the religious leaders are the cultural leaders. To the Jewish leaders, he exposed their wrong teaching and he taught the truth of what the law meant and was intended to say. That's when he said, it has been said to you of old, but I say. See, that disrupted a lot of people because there were a lot of people who thought that their sin only began when they committed the act of the sin. But Jesus disrupts their lives and says, no, it begins when it starts in your heart. And that's when he was going around calling people whitewashed tombs. You look great on the inside, but on the, in, on, on the outside, but on the inside, you are dead. And so he says, you, you have heard that you should not commit adultery, but I say that you shouldn't even look with lust or you've done it. See, that is what the law meant, but it was mishandled. And taken advantage of. So Jesus came and taught them the proper interpretation of the law. He boldly also, though, countered the culture of aestheticism in the Greek and Roman communities. Because he lives beneath his deity. And we don't have a lot of explanation for what happened when he said, come see where I live. But it's a reason why he said, come see where I live. Remember when we read last week, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but I don't have a place to lay my head. Whatever it was and wherever it was that Jesus was standing, I believe that he was testing them. He said, yeah, this man just told you I'm the Messiah. You want to see where I live? Come see And he was gauging whether or not they would still follow a man who would live in such dire conditions. And believe this is the son of God. Now, Jesus gave a general charge, a general charge to proclaim, to proclaim, teach the truth and to live it. And he gave the 12 apostles the charge, only the 12 apostles, the charge to extend his miraculous signs. And I want to drive this into everybody today so that we only so that we can understand. Only disciples make more disciples. That's it. 
Only disciples make more disciples. See, many churches are taking nominal and oftentimes non-Christians and making them have enough confidence to invite people to their church, but they're not really Christians. And they don't draw Christians. Non-Christians draw non-Christians. They're only attractive to other non-Christians because there is no real Christian who would see a non-Christian and think, oh, I want to go to your church. See, I don't know if anything grieves the Holy Spirit more than when people who profess to live the truth don't tell the truth. There is nothing that angers me more than when there are people who claim they live the truth but will not tell the truth. Listen, if you are indeed a disciple, you tell the truth regardless of how it makes that person feel because it is not your concern about how they feel right now Versus how they're going to feel later on. And if I love you. Regardless of how uncomfortable it makes me feel. And it does. Regardless of how uncomfortable it makes you feel. I can't just live the truth. I have to tell you the truth. Now. There is a problem in Christianity or people who profess to be Christians when it comes to telling the truth. We often only have two levels. Either we're extremely offensive to the point that it prevents a person, if they would, to even want to repent because we have just bashed them to death. And then the other levels, we just don't say anything at all. Now, just so you know, neither one of those glorifies God. See, being a disciple is not, I'm either all in or I'm all out, but it's about finding the right balance so that when I come to a person, I can meet that person where they are. That's what Jesus did. See, Jesus had a different level of boldness when he encountered the woman at the well because he knew exactly who she was. But look at the, the level of meekness he had when the woman was found in the act of adultery. See, if we think there's a one-for-all approach to everybody when it comes to making disciples, then we are wrong. Tim Keller has a quote, and it's one that I use a lot, and I want you to hear it. He says, it's very easy to condemn someone in such a way that you just raise their defense mechanisms up so high there's no way they'll ever repent. See, it glorifies God for you to tell the truth about sin, but it glorifies God more than when you tell the truth, the person repents. He said, if you condemn a person in such a way that it makes it so offensive, it makes it impossible for that person to repent, and you're self-righteous. See, being a disciple is about living the truth and telling the truth But it's about telling the truth and living the truth in the best way that actually glorifies God so that the people who are on the outside can come and be on the inside. 
We're almost done. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a light. People light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Oftentimes I hear people who profess to be Christians say this, and you've probably said it before, and I want you to feel all the conviction of saying it. Well, that's just what I believe, but I can't force my beliefs on nobody else. I can't tell nobody else how to live their life. Look, that's their life. I'm just going to let them do whatever they want to do. But if you are saying that, then you are completely missing what being a Christian is. See, every other religion says this, and I want you to please hear this. Every other religion doesn't say that they're the only way. They say that they're a better way. Jesus Christ did not say that he was a better way. He said there is no other way. Which means you have to absolutely tell people this is what I believe. Whether you accept it or not, I will not back down because I know this is the truth. See, how is it that there are people who believe a lie but are more dedicated to their faith than we are? Mormons will ride bikes until their thighs chafe. Jehovah's Witness will knock on your door until their knuckles are callous. Muslims will sweat out their suits on the corner. Why? Because though it is a lie, they really believe it. How is it that we professing Christians have the truth and know the truth, but won't tell anybody the truth? How is it that they can have more faith in a lie and we have the truth and this treasure in earthen vessels and we won't even tell people about what we believe? The uncomfortable reality is perhaps you don't really believe it. Why in the world, if I believe something was the best thing that has ever existed, I wouldn't tell anybody about it. See, what he's saying is, he said, if you are the salt, once you have lost what you are supposed to be, there is no way to restore your value. That's what he's saying.
See, we just think of salt. Oh, that's that stuff we pour. No. Salt for them was a preservative. It was a commodity. And it gave taste to their food. So it was a huge commodity for them. But once salt lost its taste, it's good for nothing. If we are professing Christians and we have been so diluted by the world, there's no way we'll be able to restore our salt to this. He says, if the light is in you, he doesn't say it won't be hidden. He says it can't be hidden. But he says, if the light is in you. See, you've probably heard this before, but it is true. There is no such thing as darkness. Darkness is only the absence of light. How do we know that? Because you cannot turn darkness on. You can only turn light off. Which means if we are the light of the world and we are at work on work conditions that we feel are dark, perhaps your light is off. If we are in a living situation that is very dark, perhaps it's your light that's off. See, what he says is you can't even take a bowl and put it on the light and it still not blaze the area that it is. Maybe what's wrong with the world is that we keep talking about the world instead of talking to the world. Or perhaps we're just as dim as they are. If you are really a Christian and the light is in you and you believe it, it flies out of you. You can't help yourself. You can't control it. You can be talking about food and you say, but you know, Jesus really is the bread of heaven. You can be talking about work, but you know, but Jesus already did a completed work. It comes out of you because you love it and you believe it. Let me ask you this question. Do you remember how you felt when you were first saved? Assuming you were. You remember how people couldn't shut you up about the gospel? You remember how it was like a fire that was ignited in you? You remember how much you loved to tell people about what you studied in the word? What you worshiped to? You remember that? You remember that feeling? When was the last time you felt like that? And you weren't telling people about your church. Hmm. When's the last time you were that excited about the gospel and not about how well I preach and not about how well they sing? When's the last time you told people about the gospel? Let me ask you this question. Maybe it's a better question. Did you ever feel like that? Did you ever feel like telling people about the Lord. There was no shame. There was no silence. You told everybody you could because you really believed it. We all need to have that same 
initiative, that same drive, that same love about the Lord we had when we first believed. And I get it. I get it. Life calluses you. It hardens you. And you run into so many people that you give up sometimes on the gospel. But the words of Paul always haunt me. When he says, to the weak, I became as weak. So that I would draw the weak. He said, to those who are under the law, though I being free from the law. No longer a slave to the law, but a slave to Christ. I make myself to be under the law so that I can draw those who are under the law. He says, I made myself, which, which he's really saying, I lowered myself to be all things to all men that by all means I would draw all. Nope. He said that I might draw a small portion. I'm going to close with this. The Greek word for disciple is methetes. Um, and it was a very meaningful word, word, word in the Greek world. Plato developed a form of thinking or a form of philosophy that separated the physical and the spiritual realm. Now this disconnection between the physical and spiritual is still affecting us today. And a lot of times we see it as people, people look at the secular versus the sacred. Now, that form of thinking that he had is called platonic thought. Now, Plato had a follower whose name was Aristotle. He was a student of this platonic philosophy. Aristotle, because he really believed in what Plato was teaching, developed these schools which were the first forms of academies where he would train the next generations of Platonists. As Plato's student, one of his primary jobs was to teach the, the philosophy and to cultivate more people to believe in Platonic thought. That was his main role. He wanted as many people to adapt this worldview. And so what he did is he taught teachers, he taught lawyers, and he taught business people to have this view so that the view that he had would permeate the culture. That was the idea. Now, at some point, Rome took over Greece. And when they took over Greece, while they seized them, there was one thing that they could not seize, which was this strong platonic culture that they had. That platonic culture was so strong that it permeated the Roman Empire. And so that the Romans adapted the belief system of the Greeks because there were so many people teaching it. And there were so many people who believed it. And that's called Hellenization. Platonic thought was like an infectious disease that they could not get rid of. And that's the power of discipleship. See, that's not just the power of it. That's the point of it. That's the whole point of discipleship. When Jesus discussed the discipleship, it was in the context of Greeks influencing the Roman Empire through the power of discipleship. 
See, Jesus Christ sees the concept of discipleship and intimates, I am looking for a generation of followers who are so saturated in my way of thinking that they will take what I think and it will permeate the worldview and the culture of everybody else. There will be people who believe what I believe so strongly that people will not get be able to get away from them because they're going to be everywhere. Which is why he took just 12 people and he spread the gospel over all the world. The only reason that is able to happen is because those 12 believe what he was teaching. So, as a school teacher, your school teacher who's really disguised as a school teacher who's there to disciple. If you are a lawyer, you're really just pretending to be a lawyer so you can get into the courtroom so that you can disciple more people. If you are a businessman, you are really a follower of Christ who is disguised as a businessman so that you can take the word of God and permeate the culture. See, the idea is to have people who are unashamed about who they are in the midst of a fallen world who will tell the truth about Christ in such a way that people will see the light in them and glorify God which is in heaven. That is what a Christian disciple is. So when you leave out of here today, you better go out and make disciples of everybody you see. Because that's your job. That is your job. Regardless of what kind of hours you put in, if you will stop complaining about the people you work with and share them the gospel, then maybe your work conditions will be a little bit better. I found out after talking to Tina the other day, this is such a great idea, that Jehovah's Witness make you have a number of people that you have met with and shared their belief with. And we are sitting in churches while they're going making disciples of the rest of the world. We're sitting here talking to each other. I want to implore to you if you are a Christian, and I'm, I'm saying if. If you are a Christian and you are ashamed of the gospel, Jesus told us, he said, it comes at a great cost. One, you can't be a Christian and be ashamed of the gospel. But he said, if you are ashamed of me before these people who can't put you in heaven, and who cannot put you in hell if you are ashamed of me in front of them. You're going to try to stand before me. And you're going to want me to let you in. And I can't let you in because you never let me out. And I'm trying to end, but 
This is so serious. We don't know when these people won't be able to hear the gospel anymore. But the Bible tells us that there is going to be a time where the gospel will not be able to be preached. And I want to have the same mind of Christ, which is I want to take as many people to heaven with me as I possibly can. So I had two questions. One, are you a disciple? Is your name written in the book of life? And if you are, when's the last time you shared the gospel? If you're not a Christian, I am making as serious as an appeal to you as I can. I don't know that you have tomorrow. I don't know that you have a minute from now. But I know that you have the moment which you have, which is to make him the Lord of your life right now. Let's pray.